Yay. Hey, y'all. Hey. Everything good? Y'all can hear me? I can hear you? Yep. All right. So hello and welcome to the eighth episode of The Well Project's A Girl Like Me Live, a new interactive live streaming series events and health and wellness issues, um, discussions, and education among women living with and vulnerable to HIV. Every two weeks, ICC COVID will sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our communities. In today's episode, I talk with Portia Dees and Gina Brown, um, two long-term survivors um, from the Well Projects community. So I'm so excited. We're honoring National HIV Agent Awareness Day today. That isn't until the 18th, but we would have missed it if we pushed it back any further. So I'm so grateful to have y'all here. And I would first like to start with introduction. So um, Portia, you want to go first? Let us know your affiliations. I know we know y'all very well, but I want to hear affiliations and how you got linked with the well project um my name's portia and um i i i'm a cap member for the well project i'm a wri member for the well project i am also um a national hiv and aging intern for nmac called the man and then how I got connected to the Well Project is uh, actually Masonia. She referred me to Krista. I went to the USCA conference in 2018, and then she introduced me to Krista there. And then from there, that's I've been connected. <laughs> All right, and Gina. Hello, Gina Brown. Um, let's see, I became involved with the Well Project through WRI, the Women's Research Initiative on HIV and AIDS. Um, I started attending the meetings in 2012. So I knew Krista and Jenna and Dawn and a bunch of other people. Um, and then I was invited to um, become a CAB member. And now I am the chair of our CAB, um, our community advisory board, a position that I truly, truly enjoy. Um, and just connecting with the ladies all the time. Um, I also work at the Southern AIDS Coalition. That's my day job. <laughs> and I'm really happy to be here with y'all. I'm always happy to be here with y'all. <laughs> so um, let's see, National HIV Aging and Awareness Day. I don't even, when I think of HIV and aging, I definitely, you know, stereotypically wouldn't think of Portia, you know. So, Portia, how do you get involved in a conversation like this? Um, well, I think because I've been living with HIV for such a long time. Um, so since birth, I, 35 years, I don't know what um, age, like, or how many years you can, like, say, uh, some somebody's a long-term survivor like I don't know what the is it like 10 15 like how long do you have to be living with the virus to be considered a long-term survivor um but you know I've been living with it for 34 years so I feel like I'm definitely aging with HIV and I think verticals um people who were born HIV positive or been living with it since birth 
experienced some of the things that come with aging, um, not just aging with HIV, but aging in general at earlier ages, like under 50. So that's how I feel like, think that's why I get involved in this conversation or included at least. I, and I love that perspective, like not necessarily the fact that you, you know, were diagnosed at birth or that you, you know, contracted HIV at birth, but just the fact that we have a different face that goes on to the aging topic, because typically you would think of, you know, like older people. And in my head, we still young, but in somebody else's head, I feel like we're not so young no more. <laughs> Especially, especially when you can't apply for like youth stuff anymore. So, right. but by this age, I feel like, you know, there is some experience and you have gone through different parts of life that definitely like we're aging a little bit. One of my friends just said that she's noticing some gray hair. Not to say that only uh, older people get gray hair, <laughs> but I was like, it's happening to us. Yes, <laughs> in different places, too. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so, Gina, how long have you been living with? I've been living with HIV 27 years this past April. Um, I was diagnosed April 4th, 1994. Um, and if you had told me then that I would be here now, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, and Portia, I'm so happy to be here with you because I say that all the time when we talk about long-term survivors or people who have aged with HIV, we normally think of older people. And I often say, where are the young people who um, this has been their life, all of their life? So CC you. put together a good panel. <laughs> Thank you. You know, this the Well Project team. We be doing stuff, and we could yes. not do it without our community. I just think our community is one of the best. I'll always dig us up. You know, even when it comes down to input of what we want to see see talked about, like is one of the most amazing things. So to have y'all two different perspectives, and what better, you know, Portia and Gina. Like, right. I'm honored <laughs> to be here with you too, Gina. Same. This is amazing. <laughs> so oh, I'll be paying attention to words, Gina, and I heard you day. Is that's four four ninety four? Yep. Wow. Um, and um, what's weird about my date of diagnosis? So my wow. birthday is January fifteenth. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows Martin Luther King was born on January fifteenth. We just celebrated a different day. Mm -hmm. He was murdered on April 4th, and that's my day of diagnosis. Oh, and wow. that that got me too. That's deep. A lot going <laughs> on. Yeah. yeah. A lot going on. Oh, God. In 27 years? Yes. I always try to do math when I hear stuff like that. Like, I was only like five or six or something. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> So that comes, I think that's how a lot of people define like long-term survivors. Depending on who you ask, you know, they'll have a different answer. But most of the time, sorry, it's an airplane going by. And then my, a car across the street with a loud motor. I don't know where they're going, but I'm going to mute for a minute. <laughs> most of the time we um, think of long-term survivors as people that were like, pre the current medications that we have now. So mm -hmm. pre art, pre 
um, ARVs and all of that. So I was looking at, you know, who else Miss um, D, D. Connors. Her, she had a TikTok up the other day and she had all of these pills laying out. Um, and she was talking about how long ago she was diagnosed and how she, I think it was like 14 pills she was saying she had to take every day. Did y'all experience it? Yeah. So me, I mean, I can't, I, just from far, as far as back as I can remember, um, I was, I know all people didn't probably, my parents allowed me to be on some of the study trials. Like if I go way back, <laughs> Um, on some of the study trials for the new medications that we have today. Um, and then I remember when I was a kid, I had this little princess lunch pail, you know, them hard box lunch pails. And it was filled up with medication. Like, um, I feel like we had to take medications for like the side effects of the medications back then. And <clears throat> And I remember this one pill that I took. It was called DDT. Oh, I used to hate taking that pill. Like, I was used to cry. Like, my mom used to make me take it. You had to chew it, and it tastes like chalk, and it was nasty and ill. Yeah, so I remember. Was that, like, every day, or was it multiple times a day? Every day. I took pills in the morning and at night. So I can remember taking, like, maybe 10 at, in the morning, 10 at night. As a kid, as a little kid, princess lunch pail full of medication. So, yeah. And um, I always say I have a love-hate relationship with the meds. Like, um, like I know they work. I know that, they, that I need them. Um, but I've also experienced a lot of side effects from the medication. And so, like, I've went, been on, like, medication holidays and stuff like that because of that. So... Yeah. What is a medication holiday for those people that may not know? Um, it's like when you go off of your medication and take a break. Um, and I've done that. Not, And I'm not encouraging anybody to do this. <laughs> but I've done that for many reasons, especially in my like young adult years. Um, um, yeah, and, and I had to learn the hard way that that was not a good idea. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I went on, it's when you go off your medication. That's what a medication holiday is. And is that like at the advice of like professionals or are you just taking things and see your own hand at that point? Yeah. Um, I, I took things into my own hands at, at that point. Um, I don't think any providers give, uh, give <laughs> their, their patients like, uh, recommendations to go on medication holidays no i don't think but so. i think providers understood yeah because y'all were very vocal about why you were doing it so i remember mm -hmm. when i started working in the field in 2002 i worked at our hiv outpatient clinic and um i would work on the days that the adolescents came in and i tell you everything i know about hiv i learned from the adolescents they would come in and they would talk about, you know, I'm going to spend a weekend by my boyfriend and I cannot take these pills with me. Or they would say, um, do you know what it's like to always your whole life have taken medication? Yeah. And I got a different perspective from them. And um, so did the providers. And the providers started saying, well, we're not going to be as hard on them as we used to be. Right, you know, right. People used to be like drilling it in your head. Take your meds, take your meds. 
And then it became more of listening to why young people weren't taking their meds. Right. right. Um, I was on 17 pill once, pills once, once upon a time. And I used to line them up on the bed <laughs> and take them one, <laughs> one by one and say, this is the only way I could do it. I would say, I'm adding a year to my life. I'm adding a year to my life. I'm, until I got through all 17 of those pills. Man. And yeah, and it was, you know, you did what you did. And Krista put a, a comment up. And yes, Krista, I remember the alarm clocks. This was before we had these sophisticated cell phones. <laughs> we had little beepers, little buzzers that you could set that would buzz in your pocket to remind you to take your medication. Because you took it throughout the day. It wasn't like, oh, I'm on one pill once a day. That was a dream. That was yeah. something that was in a sci-fi movie. It was not anything that was Man. something that we were thinking like, oh my goodness, they're going to one day have one pill <laughs> once a day. <laughs> it was like, I hate taking all day. these pills. <laughs> so then so an injectable day. had to be like... <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I'm still oh. trying to wrap my, my head around that. That there's something in a syringe that they can put inside of my body that could work for thirty days. Uh, I can't wait. Like I, I can't wait till <laughs> it actually drops and we can do it. Like, and I don't have because even with my one pill once a day, I sometimes I'll be forgetting. Like if I took my medicine or like, it's you can mess up with the one pill once a day too. So that shot. Oh my god, I can't yeah. wait for that. To come out. <laughs> I sit here and I listen to y'all and I feel like I don't know, maybe some guilt or something. I don't know what the emotion is, but I complain about taking my little two pills a day. You know, I hate it. And sometimes I have taken myself off of medication at some time because I don't want to take medicine. I don't feel like it or whatever. But to hear you know, for me now, it sounds like a, a sense of privilege. I've been positive like 13 years. And so if y'all, you know, for however long it was that you did it to take so many pills at once, multiple times a day so that you could stay alive, like that is inspiring to me now because I'm like, okay, well, if they could do that, then I could go ahead and pop these little two pills. I could do this. And then, you know, when... I'm able to go back to my one pill once a day, then, okay, I can pop this little one pill because I'm adding years to my life. Thank you, Gina. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is the first time I've ever been compliant or I hate that word compliant. This is the first time I've ever followed a, doc a doctor's instructions, directions on taking medication. I was on a pill and birth control pill. And I would take that pill maybe twice a month sometimes. And it was <laughs> and they were right in my drawer. As soon as you open the drawer, they were right there. And I would look at it and say, oh, I'll take it tonight. And then tonight would come and I'd be asleep. And I don't know if it's because this is my health and it's different than a baby, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I take this medicine. Uh, and I understand people who are fatigued. I understand people who... Um, who who miss doses or skip doses or make a decision not to even take medicine, I would never tell anybody they were wrong for that. What I do is um, 
I just try to tell people, you know, keep up with your labs. No matter what you're doing, keep up with your labs. Always know where, know where you're at um, health-wise, you know. So that's, that's the main thing to me is um, is us knowing our CD4 and our viral load. And for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm hard-headed. I had to learn the hard way, like, and I, you know, and ever since I experienced, you know, the consequences from not taking your medicine and going on a, you know, a treatment holiday or whatever you want to call it. I've been on it. And, and then now since COVID hit, COVID really got me on like taking my medicine and not only that, like doing extra stuff, like, um, because I really feel like, man, so we're in intersecting pandemics right now and the Delta variant is, is happening. And I think it's just going to be get worse and worse. And so like, honestly, uh, COVID got me on it. Like I got to get, keep my immune system up. And then since I've been vegan, um, I never thought I've never been able to get my T cells over 500. Um, since I was born, like my T cells have never been over 500. And now I'm actually at 691. And I think it has a lot to do with because of my diet change and everything, all this extra stuff I've been doing. And so now I'm excited. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, I feel like I could get to a thousand now. <laughs> so I'm, I've been on it. I yeah. feel like I, I have too, since we've been in this pandemic, like I don't want to get sick. I, at all so let me take my meds and I think something that's pushing me right now is the fact that I am pregnant and that I want you know the baby to be healthy without HIV and I want to breastfeed so that's like my motivating thing right now mm-hmm. and you know another form of privilege or another thing of privilege to even be able to say those things right now to two long-term survivors is like whoa look at how far we've come like look at you know y'all came before me and these things were not even like a topic it seems like they were just trying to keep us alive to keep you all alive and now We've gotten to a point. See, I, I want to get teary-eyed today. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't cried in like two episodes. I've been doing so good. Um, <laughs> but now we've made it so far to where these changes are that, you know, that we can even start having these conversations yeah. of vaginal births, of, you know, possibly, you know, breastfeeding without transmitting the virus. Um, one pill a day, the injectable that Gina can't even wrap her mind around. So we're just aging, aging with HIV. That wasn't a thing. It was a death sentence. They said I wasn't supposed to be five. And so 34, what? And people are <laughs> like living long and healthy lives, you know? So how old they said for you? Five. I wasn't supposed wow. to be five. Yeah. So what did the age 15 feel like? Like, did you know? I'm just throwing out a random year. Like, that was years <laughs> past your life expectancy. I I think I barely start thinking about that now. At 16, I was still living like or thinking I was going to die. I don't know why. <laughs> but now I know why. But, yeah, my mindset um, didn't shift until probably like 25, 26 Um where I started thinking the other way, you know? <laughs> that you could live. Plus, 
Yeah, plus my mom passed away in my uh, from AIDS-related illnesses in my uh, junior year of high school. So that was like around that time, like 15, 16. So yeah, I was really deep in that mindset of I was going to die too. So even though I was already living 15 years past my life expectancy, but yeah, my mindset didn't shift until I got like older. What about you, Gina? Did you also... The three of us, we are three different um, stories, right, mm -hmm. in in this HIV thing. So, Portia, when your mom had you, there was no thought of medication that could keep a woman from transmitting HIV, right? Mm -hmm. Then I came along in 94, and they were doing a study called 076. And mm -hmm. 076 was the platinum study that showed that if a woman took AZT and gave it to her baby for six weeks, that it keep the baby from contracting HIV. Now, CC is a different story. Not mm -hmm. only is CC able to prevent her baby from contracting HIV ver um, vertical, but not breastfeeding. Breastfeeding. You know, like, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to get pregnant just so I can breastfeed. <laughs> <No>. Yeah. <laughs> For real, that's so tight, y'all. It's like three different perspectives. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Aww. So I want to read this comment. One of the first times I met Dawn Everett, the founder of The Well Project, she was presenting on HIV treatment to a group of women living with HIV. It was 1996. She was talking about how she had as many T-cells as fingers on her hand, and she had named each of her T-cells. Wow. Wow. wow and she's that's still crazy. here. She's it still here. And if you see her, you would not think that at one point her T-cells were... were five or below. Wow. Dawn looks amazing. She lives an amazing life. She's an amazing woman. And um, and I look at Dawn as, as someone who taught all of us, even when we didn't know it, to be um, not only concerned with our own care, but to look out for each other. Because, you know, once upon a time, women, we weren't really in research. No. You know, they kept saying we were difficult. It was hard to work with us. They had all these things about us, but they were not even reaching out to us. And once people like Dawn started saying, pay attention to women, get women in these in these clinical trials. And then it started happening. And then we went from Portia's mom to me to you, Cece. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I love this so much. So... My major in school was like, it was child and family development. So to be able to watch that lifespan, you know, and to study it all. So, you know, Portia, your, your plethora of information, you know, from, I would have never associated a Disney metal lunchbox with HIV medications. <laughs> like, cause I was there, like I was that child with you, we around the same age. Mine's was filled with the little canteen, you know, with the top. <laughs> like, it would have never been HIV medication. Yeah. It's not for me. So, to even have to go back and reflect that that was your experience, whoa. Mm -hmm. Also covered that adolescence and everything. Gina, you, I know you was a young thing. You was a young thing. <laughs> yeah, I was 28 when I was diagnosed. And you know what I did, though? And I'm so glad to see y'all live your life. I stopped living, y'all. I got my diagnosis and I became so afraid of 
somebody kind because I live in a state that criminalizes HIV. So I became so afraid of somebody saying I didn't tell them. You know, and having me on the front page of the newspaper that I just stopped living. Wow. I didn't start living again until 2002. Now, I was diagnosed in 94. And I stayed in a corner. I stayed in my house. I stayed isolated. I stayed all of those things we hear about for all of those years. And then in, 90, in, in 2002, um, I started working in the field and I started meeting amazing women like y'all. And I started meeting women who told me that I could live, you know, um, and then I met this one chick who said, you know what? Whether you live or die, live your life, girl. <laughs> yes. And I was like, well, all right. Maybe I can do that. You know? So, yes. That was almost a decade of shame or living in silence. Or, and I'm thinking like that was through the 90s, which the 90s seemed, when I look back on it, I don't know how y'all experienced. It just seemed like such a great time to be alive, but yet you were dealing with something so heavy. And you you went through two, the what was that, the 2000, when we thought that the world was going to end? Like, I was ready for it to end. I was like, what? what? <laughs> I'm gonna die anyway, so everybody should die with me. <laughs> well, okay. you picked yourself up, and finally in 2002, so what you had to be like 36 or something. And I was um, 34. Okay. I think I was 34. But I know. Um, I was sick and tired of hiding. I used to work at a at a pharmacy, in the pharmacy at that. And my and my pharmacist was one of these brilliant people that could look at a pill and tell what it was. So I knew if he saw my medicine, he would know. And I would wait for him to turn his head, and I would put my hand in my pocket, take the pills out, and pop them in my mouth. <laughs> and I tell people, you know, I probably ate bugs and lint and tobacco, whatever was in my pocket, because I never looked at my hand. I just took my pills and popped them, you know, um, and I was afraid. I was terrified of people finding out. Um, I couldn't watch a movie about HIV with other people in the room. I would break out in a sweat, you know. It was horrible. It was horrible. And then I, I, I got a newsletter once and it said that my um, organization, my agency was hiring. And I was like, I might be able to be a peer. I didn't even know what a peer advocate was, y'all. <laughs> but I said, I'm going to go for it. And I was hired. And I walked in that building. And I was home. I didn't just have a job. I had something to look forward to. It was, even though I was a peer advocate, it was a career. It was a career. It's, you know. it's crazy because some of the same things you're saying, it, I can resonate with, but just different you know like um it wasn't until i got connected um into i after i transitioned out of pediatric uh hiv medical care which was at children's hospital la um i went to aids healthcare foundation um in hollywood and that's kind of when i fell out of care but when i came back <laughs> after you know, I experienced all the health issues that I did. My kidneys failed, um, and but I made it through all of that or whatever. And then after that, I was like, all right, uh, God done 
done got me through. So I got to keep my promise to God. And that's when I got connected back to, I started going back to AHF and I became, a, what is it called? A cab member with them. And then they, they like started having me, having me participate in their advocacy events. And then I quickly became one of their star mobilizers. And then from there, that's when I felt like that same thing you said, where like, okay, I got a community of people like it's not just me i thought i was by myself for a long time like i don't know why only person i remember seeing on tv and stuff was Hydea, you know but other than that um i thought i was by myself for a long time and then so yeah once i got connected back into care back to like all those resources that i used to get as a kid then i felt whole again you know um yeah. But I kind of like lived in silence. I would say when I got into middle school, all throughout high school, till I turned about 24, 25. Cause when I was a kid, I didn't know it was no stigma. <laughs> I didn't know it was a stigma until I got older. <laughs> We're coming back to stigma. I definitely want to talk about that. But what we ain't going to do is just breeze over this whole kidney failure. Oh, you surely just skated all over that. Sure okay. <laughs> okay. So kidney failure at what age? Um, That was in 2011. I had to be like maybe 23 or 20. Or 22, 23, was I would say. Was HIV related? Um, so at that point, okay, I was um adherent to my medication until I graduated high school because I had to be because my parents made me take my medicine <laughs> mm -hmm. and it was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I was undetectable and I started doing my own thing when I graduated and went to college. Um, I didn't want to put my medicines in the refrigerator at the dorms. Um, I didn't like how the medication affected my body. Like I experienced lipodystrophy from all, being, all the years I've been on medication. So then plus I was in my drinking party in college stage years. So I don't know if it was from from me not being adherent to the medication like I should have been. And then plus, and the reason why I didn't want to be is because I wanted to drink and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so I didn't want to take my medicine and be drinking and stuff on top of that. But sometimes I would. So I don't know if it was because of that too, like taking the medicine and partying and drinking and stuff. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, my kidneys failed. Um, it was crazy. I, I, I think I was off on and off my treatment for about like six, six years, <laughs> a long time. I know that's bad. Don't judge me. y'all. <laughs> um, and so I had, my T cells were slowly going down and um, I had got sick, like really sick. And I knew I had pneumonia cause I get pneumonia, I've gotten pneumonia a lot. So I know what it feels like when I get pneumonia. So I was like, all right, I need to go to the emergency room. I know they gonna tell me I got pneumonia. You know, they told me I got pneumonia like I thought they was. And then they told me I had acute kidney failure. I was like, what? <laughs> And because I was so young, they didn't want to start me on dialysis right away. So they like 
was like flushing me with the that saline stuff, like trying to see if my kidneys would just start come back to life on it on its own, but it wasn't. They put the a catheter in me. I was like so big, like I got so big because the fluids wasn't leaving my body. And then eventually after two weeks, they started me on dialysis. And I was so depressed, y'all. I thought I was gonna have to do dialysis for the rest of my life. I was like, oh no, this ain't it. <laughs> this ain't it. And after doing it three times, my kidneys started working again. And yeah. and and then got out the hospital. They took the the central line out. And ever since then, I, I was like, all right, I gotta get my life together. Like, you know, you know, plus I bargained with God while I was in there. So I feel like I had to keep my keep my promise, you know, like so I got back into uh treatment and then from there I did like this AHF um put me on contract on independent contract for like three months and then I got my first job working at Foothill AIDS Project in San Bernardino. And then from there I just been going hard. <laughs> in the field. <laughs> wow, that was a journey. That yeah. was a yes. major journey. And um, um, Sorry. And yeah, I don't know if it was related to the HIV. And then right now, and I'm experiencing blood clots. And I think we always want to relate it to like the HIV. But I don't know, you know, it could be treatment related, you know, or just, I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So, whoa, okay. And you're only 34? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I always, um, you know, you never know how much you can learn from your own peers. You know, I would always look to like older women, older people to, you know, that's who can teach me something. But no, I've definitely learned a lot. <laughs> and, you know, the time that I've known you and even in this conversation, okay, taking heat, got it. Um, Gina, I always hear you talk about menopause. I ain't putting your business out there because yeah. you didn't get it. <laughs> always. And I'm like, what does HIV have to do with menopause? Like, I, what? So that's something. So there that are, yes. Yes. Okay. There are some studies that show that um, women that we tend to go into menopause a little earlier. Um because of our HIV. And I think it's because of the medicines we take and different things like that, right? Um, menopause is not gonna affect everybody the same way, but I tell you, I have like the worst case of it, in my opinion. Constant <laughs> <laughs> high flashes, you know, mood swings, those kind of things. Um, I really want somebody to do a study looking at, at menopause and HIV. You know, I went to Croy, um, for the first time this year, that was an experience, y'all. And there was a study that looked at the grouping of the symptoms. So women who are perimenopausal, women who are menopausal, and who are postmenopausal. And if you look at the grouping of those symptoms, it was amazing because I can remember like right before I went into menopause, feeling this way. Now I'm in menopause, I'm feeling this way. I can't wait to get postmenopausal. I don't care if I do feel that way. I just want it to be over with. Um, and I don't think that they they take enough time. Um, researchers take enough time in, in figuring out our um, 
the way the way our uterus works, the way our, our reproductive um, system works for women who are living with HIV and who are on this medication. I think that um, two people, well, three people I know who are doing amazing work around this. Um, Dr. Chuck Weir, uh, he was at Dartmouth. I love Chuck. I call him my dad. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Gina Brown, when she was at NIH, she was doing amazing work around um, mm -hmm. cervical stuff and, and women. And I can't remember Fla Flavia's last name, Crystal. Please, please, please hurry up and type it out so I <laughs> know it. Um, but the three of them, I read a white paper that they did once, and it was looking at at trauma at our, in our um, cervix. We tend to keep that trauma if we've been molested or raped. That trauma tends to live in your cervix. And I was like, what? I was shocked. So to look at something like that and then to go deeper and see how does that impact um, menopause for women who are living with HIV. You know, um, looking at, at women Portia's age, right, who've been living with HIV all their life and saying, are we seeing any patterns of things happening different with, with those women? So with Portia and the Hydeas and the Tiffany's and saying these are all women who we know were, live, were born living with HIV and they're in their 30s. And now they're talking about high flashes. I'm not saying y'all are. I'm just, you know, like they're all talking about high flashes or they're talking about mood swings or they're talking about being fatigued. And it has nothing to do with the HIV side of things. So let's look at where are their hormone levels? Let's look at That's keeping true. up with that. I want people to do some real research on that, y'all. I think a lot of uh, things are related to the treatment of us being on the treatment for so long, too. Like, I know a lot of verticals who have experienced kidney issues. Mary Bowman also, her kidneys failed and she was on dialysis that's what she passed away from um and then bone i keep pushing with with the nan um through nmac i feel like we need to get bone density scans and how i'm getting a, a colonoscopy this friday I'm, I'm nervous but we need to get them at younger ages you know what i'm saying because because like you said menopause and all these other health issues we experience them earlier so yeah like i know people who have really weak bones um have broken like their bones and stuff like easily um other verticals who i hear complain about that you know like but we've never had a bone density scan why are they not you know checking our our bone health or our kidney health like keeping up well they actually do keep up with my kidney health but <laughs> um i don't know if that's all across the board for everyone you know what i'm saying and then like you said reproductive issues menopause all this stuff like yeah we need to get checked for these things earlier so i think that's really um interesting that you just even brought up the bone density um topic because in talking about like having this baby um, the pediatrician I'm working with, she was talking about the treatment that the baby would take because it still is recommended that the baby, you know, take the HIV meds at least for like the first four to six weeks. And something different is happening with this child versus my first one where I think Zion stayed on the same med the first six weeks. They're suggesting that 
this baby takes one med for four weeks. And then after four weeks, if I continue, like if I breastfeed or whatever, they would switch because the first medicine is known to create those bone density issues Mm -hmm. in the children. And I'm like, wow, okay. I didn't even realize that that was a thing. But stuff we're learning from y'all, you know, people that have been through this already. And I'm just so grateful for y'all. I'm going to jump into our cab, Um, their input, things that they wanted to make sure that we talked about. And y'all have hit so many of the points already. Um, And I want to just make sure that we get to a good bit of them. Um, So we talked about lipodystrophy. Um, how to keep our organs in optimal health. I feel like we have touched slightly on it. We have at least talked about the kidneys. We've talked about the cervix. We've, you know, talked, do y'all find yourselves doing anything differently, you know, than people your age because of HIV or I think I definitely take care of myself um, better or at least I have to go get my labs done and get checked up and go to the doctor more than the normal person, or I don't want to say normal, but a person who doesn't, (laughs) who um, does. And so like, I feel like I take care of my health better. I mean, I have to, but you know, than others, than most. Um, what about you, Gina? <laughs> yes, the same thing. Um, I think about like my mom, you know, watching my mom as I grew up. When she got in her fifties, it was like, all right, I'm fifty. I'm fifty. I'm gonna sit down and just be a fifty year old old woman. And I know that like, I'm fifty five and I don't feel old. And I know that I have to do things that she wouldn't have done. Um, and that's like drink water, take a walk. You know, I'm really being mindful of what I eat. You know, what what are you keeping in the house? Um, Snacking on carrots, you know, things like, like that, you know, um, and just really being aware, being aware that that women have heart attacks in their 50s. Yeah. So I have to do some mm-hmm. things so that I don't have a heart attack, you know. Get in front uh, of it. Yeah. You know, and that's that's it, Portia, getting in front of it, you know, making sure that um, all of the things that I know are coming with this. Because see, once you get over 50, these next these years go by so fast. <laughs> I made 50 and then I was 55. You know? <laughs> I wasn't 51, two, three, I was just 55. <laughs> and I think I'm gonna just be 60, you know. <laughs> but really like thinking about aging and and knowing that that and I hate the word normal like you, Porsche. I hate that word, but knowing that that this is not a normal air quotes y'all aging process right that it may be um sped up because of my hiv treatment and my hiv or it may be a little harder on my body so i gotta do certain things you know um and and i'm glad you talked about bone density too because i have spinal stenosis and i think it's because of Mm -hmm. some of those issues i've never had any issues with my bones and then all of a sudden when i made 50 you just it happened. Fifty. Okay, 50. so give me something to look forward to. I always I'm thirty three, so that's like seventeen years. But I can also remember seventeen years ago. So that's weird. It's, we're not as young as we used to be, Portia. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are you sure or not? <laughs> so this um this topic came in from uh, someone that was also born with HIV, and this is Kimberly Kennedy, which I I love her so much. Um, let's see. Disclosure: Does it look different now that we are older? And if so, what has changed? I don't. Does disclosure look different? Does it look different for you over your lifespan? Um, I think it's still pretty hard. I don't know. I mean, you would think that because I'm um, an advocate and I'm public with my status that it wouldn't be hard. Like disclosure wouldn't be something that's hard. But not everybody like I, I feel like not everybody just because i'm an advocate and i'm public on social media not everybody that i meet in real life <laughs> knows me and knows my status so still to me and i don't know if this is an internal thing but i don't think disclosure has gotten easier for me over time like i still am hesitant i guess about disclosing um just because or right off the back, just because I don't know the person and I don't know if I can trust them or if it's safe to. But, you know, once I get to know the person, then, yeah. Um, I mean, I what I would say is that I think that there's different tools and stuff now available that can help you disclose um, now as opposed to back then. Like, you know, they got commercials on TV now. Um they're talking about you equals you and prep and all this stuff. So, I mean, I think those things are there to make it easier. I don't know if it really does, but because <laughs> people believe what they want to believe, whether you, you know, you know, whether you educate them or not, they going to believe what they want to believe. <laughs> you know what I heard you say earlier, like when you was back in high school, your parents used to make you take medicine. And so you said, and so I was undetectable. Were y'all using terminology like that back then too? So I knew I was undetectable because, but I, I didn't know that undetectable meant untransmittable. I didn't know you equals you. But we did use the word undetectable. And then I think also undetectable has changed over the uh -huh. years because now it's below 20 or 50 in some places. But maybe back then it was below a thousand or whatever, you know. Um, but yet we used undetectable was a thing. It just we didn't know it was you equals you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I use disclosure as a way of not dealing with people, right? So it was, if I tell you, you're going to run away anyway. So <laughs> I might as well holler it out the window when you're trying to holler at me on the corner, you know. <laughs> I'm in my car and I, I have HIV. <laughs> <laughs> so you could leave me alone. And then I realized that that's exactly how I was using it. And it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to people and it wasn't fair to me. And, it, and the, way I, the reason I say it wasn't fair to people, because I wasn't giving anybody an opportunity to get to know me. You know, um, I was throwing HIV up there. So that was like my, my stop sign. Once I put the stop sign up, you stop, and that was the end of it. Um, and then it became like, all right, now I really want to date, but nobody wants to date me because I've used it. <laughs> I've used HIV as a weapon all, this, all these years. Yeah. That's you know, why I'm um, like, 
that's why I don't like saying it right up front because I want the people to get to know me first, you know, like, but sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. No. And that's, and that's what I would encourage people to do. Let people get to know you. And then, because in getting to know you, first of all, if you live in a state that, that criminalizes HIV, make sure you're just getting to know them and it's not about sex, because if it is, you, it can get really messy, you know. Um, but get to know people, let them get to know you. But more than that, you got to get to know you. Yeah. And that was the thing. I didn't know me. Mm-hmm. I thought I was HIV. I didn't know that there was a whole woman behind that diagnosis. You know, I was so happy when people changed the terminology and stopped saying HIV positive and people living with or women living with. It became so. It, it was empowering to me. It was the thing that that made me look at me differently. You know, um, plus at that time I started um really being honest about who I was as a person and who I wanted to date. And um, I didn't want to date men and I was okay with that. And I had to say that out loud, you know, and it was on something like this. We went to Amsterdam, Crystal remember this. <laughs> and I came, I came out on a Facebook live and then I had to write a blog about it because now everybody already knows. <laughs> so then I just told the world, um, and then I started looking at me differently. You know, um, if I meet a woman a day, I would not leave with, I'm living with HIV. I would leave with, I'm Gina. I'm an awesome person. I'm a mother, a grandmother. You know, um, I do work in my community because I love my community. Um, and all of those, those affirming positive things about me. And then once we really got to know each other or they got to know me as a person, then I would educate them on HIV. You know, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even leave with, you know, you equals you. <laughs> Undetectable means untransmittable. I want you to know the, the, the scientific, the science behind HIV. I want you to know that, that unless we're sharing a toy, our chances of, of you contracting HIV from me is very, very low. <laughs> Probably the lowest. <laughs> right. And being honest about that. You know, being honest about that and having that conversation, but also being honest with myself and saying, I do want to date and I want to love somebody and I want to be loved. I, I say, I say, Gina, I think that um, from your statement, you just said the the first person to that I disclosed my status to or that accepted me for all of me was a woman. And that was my first relationship. And I always say that being a lesbian in my early 20s, I feel like saved me from a lot of stuff. (laughs) I didn't need no baby daddy, no pregnancy issues at 21, 22, when I wasn't taking my medicine, not doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I didn't need those kind of problems. So, and you're right, it is uh, safer, I guess you could say, yeah. A lot safer. <laughs> well, I ain't had no baby daddy issues till I got my thirties. Is for the birds, okay? I want you to know that. Um, and Gina, you gotta also tell these folks you go to bed at six o'clock. All right, oh. there's something else you could. <laughs> I do. I do. Well, lately it's been seven thirty. It's been about seven thirty. Does that have anything to do with aging, or this just no. you? This just you. What, what I find. <laughs> What I found is, as I learned more about myself, I love being up when the world is asleep. 
I love getting up and working when the house is completely quiet and I don't have anybody saying, Gigi, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Gigi, can I do this? You know, so I, I get up at three o'clock in the morning. I love that. Maybe wow. I'll consider this. I think I'm going to be on that type of schedule anyway. Really? So, yeah. Yes. That, <laughs> yes, when the world is sleep, that's when I'm yes. like my most productive. Yes. Okay. We are, I'm going to actually run this over a few minutes because we were late getting on. So like 05-ish. Um, but I want to get through a few more comments. So I'm just going to keep pushing forward. Um, could you both give me it like one minute? No, I'm not going to put no time limit on this. Survivor's guilt. Do you all experience any of that being people who have lived with HIV for women who have lived with HIV for a long time? I I think so. Um, I know uh, I talk about my mom all the time. Um, and in a way, I the work that I do in the field, I try to honor her um, every chance that I get in that work. Um, and uh, I'm actually writing a blog about about this right now, um, kind of. Uh, and uh, yeah, I experienced a lot of survivor's guilt from that. Like, you know, I always talk about if we had the medications that we had available today before, or we, we kind of did. If it was, this much uh, advocacy, people out sharing their stories, like back when my mom was uh, still here, or if it was the amount of resources and support that we have available now, back when my mom was still here, she would still be here today. Like, you know, um, I I think I experienced a lot of survivor's guilt around that. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm traumatized from that actually, (laughs) yeah, so. about you Gina yes when I came into this thing I told you I was a pure advocate it was four of us and I'm the only one still alive and I think about them all the time all the time and I think about all the other women that I used to see at the clinic who died and I think what did I do different you know what did I do to still be here so and it gets really hard sometimes you know even like you know Portia you brought up Mary Bowman Mary was my first yeah. community daughter. And and I even feel guilt about that, about Mary not being here. Yeah, there's a lot of uh verticals uh that didn't make it. We 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 a lot of us experience more developmental issues than others, you know. It it affects yeah. the virus affects people's bodies differently. So yeah, uh, Man, the there was a documentary she was in called We Are Still Here. Um and, and we are, but a lot of us aren't. A lot of us didn't make it. Um I went back to visit my pediatrician. His name is Dr. Church, um, not too long ago. And he was like in shock, him and Dr. Furman. Like they looked at me like, Oh my God, you look so good. Wow. And he kind of like took me back to his office and he showed me like the amount of files that he has now and then uh, compared to the thousands he had when when I was his patient when we were younger and he talked about how a lot of people didn't make it too so yeah it's it's a lot of survivors guilt like 
like even we lost so many people from the pandemic and we're le we're losing even more now from this other this other pandemic so <laughs> i talk to my friends now like here goes another sense of like privilege in whatever like yo if i lose any of y'all i can't imagine what y'all went through but i got like my little tight click of you know advocate friends and if i were to lose any of them like i don't know what i would do i don't know if i would still have the fight in me to keep going i don't know if i would have the same relationship with hiv you know the courage to be able to get out and speak because everything just seems like it's doing okay. Like we cruising right now. We coasting. I don't know that. So, oh my God. Thank y'all. Y'all. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Oh my God. Okay. Oh, we're going to end on a lighter note. Okay. Because I'm ready to fall apart over here. I'm ready and everything. Um, so this is a perfect space to bring this up in. Um, how do we bridge the gap between older slash long-term folks and the newly diagnosed? There's a tendency of long-term survivors to dismiss the anxiety of the newly diagnosed. Like, you're just a baby or, oh, well, I've had it for X, Y, Z years. You're lucky it's just HIV and not AIDS. So, like, how do we bridge those gaps, do you think? First of all, we never say that. We should never, ever, ever downplay anyone's diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting in a chair crying for 20 minutes. I'm sure the person who get their diagnosis today will mm -hmm. sit in the chair and cry for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, what what I try to do, and I don't even go into it and say, you know, it's not a death sentence. <laughs> Nobody don't want to hear that. I want to hear your fears. I want you to tell me what you fear. I want you to tell me what it is that you're thinking, and then we'll have a conversation. I'm not trying to... Um, I'm not trying to look under the bed and prove to you that the boogeyman is not under there because the boogeyman is under there. You know, it is under there. And you got to look under there and see for yourself. Um, I try to, to make sure that I listen when newly diagnosed people Absolutely. speak. Um, it may have been 27 years that I'm living with this, but that, that hearing those words are the same. I'm sure that, that, how people felt 40 years ago, how people felt 30 years ago, 20 years ago, right now, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't pretend that it's different. The only thing I will tell people is the medications are different now. The medications are not as harsh on your body as they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would encourage anyone to go and look at, like, look at something um, like and the band played on. Because we should all know the history of HIV, not just when our HIV started, but the history of HIV. You know, that there was a struggle before that, thank God for ACT UP, that had it not been for the lesbians in San Francisco, nobody could have gotten blood because the gay guys couldn't give blood. All of these things, we need to know that, that people did it and, we, and then they gave us the baton. And then we did it, and now we're giving somebody else the baton. And that newly diagnosed people, one day somebody's going to hand you the baton. You got to be ready. And you and know. just by continuing to have intergenerational conversations like these, like and you know, doing things like what what 
national or what NMAC is doing, you know, with national HIV and aging um, interns, they bring in together not just 50 plus people aging with HIV, but verticals too. Um, and then just talking about it, you know, um, just talking about it. <laughs> I, I, I really wish, I think some of the terms is outdated too. Like, I know why they say HIV and AIDS are different or why it's a difference, but I just feel like, cause I think that was part of the question. Um, I know I've, I've had AIDS, I've been living with AIDS for since like six or seven, but my T cells have fluctuated up and down, you know? So I think that, part kind of scares people too, like that whole HIV and AIDS, you know, the difference and, but it's not, I don't know, to me, it's the same thing. I don't know. <laughs> cause maybe cause I've been living with it for so long, you know? So I think, um, just having these types of conversations. <laughs> and you saying that Portia made me think I had, um, one of our, our sisters in this work when she got her, um, her diagnosis changed from HIV to AIDS and she like lost her mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I try to make, I try to be like, I want things to be light. I don't want people to be so torn up, you know? So I looked at her and I said, she was on the floor and I leaned down and I said, Ooh, you got one more letter. And she looked, <laughs> she looked at me and she wanted to be mad. And she couldn't oh, do anything but laugh, <laughs> you know, because I told her, I said, you walked in the room thinking you had HIV, so that one more letter shouldn't matter. Right. <laughs> and that's what we have to make sure that that's the message, CC, that we have to tell everybody that that we we all have a virus inside of us. It doesn't matter what you call it, HIV or AIDS, but there's a lot we can do to take care of that virus and, you know. We can take our medication. We can drink water. We can rest. We can meditate. We can go to support groups. We can, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to be here. Look, y'all, I'm going to, we're about to end this, all right, because I'm about to just <laughs> fall apart. <laughs> I, as a person, I like to call myself a midterm survivor because I'm not newly diagnosed and I'm not, you know, uh, classified as a long-term survivor. Y'all have given me so much hope, so much inspiration, just like, I gave myself 20 years when I was diagnosed in 2008. I'm 13 of those, but if Portia's 34, then it means that I at least have 14 more years and if Gina can Longer make it to 55 then I can make it to 55 like it's just it makes me feel so hopeful and I'm so appreciative for y'all and thank you so much for sharing your experiences and we could probably go on in this conversation all day we have like the nurturance and like the energy is just so no Gina cannot adopt you okay Katie Gina can adopt me all right you just have us all gina yes katie yes <laughs> yes i adopt everybody yes okay. you know you are Heather, you already know you mine so <laughs> <laughs> okay so this has been such a wonderful stream 
Our next one will be on 9-22, September 22nd. It's September is Sexual Health Awareness Month. Um, I'll be sitting down with Kimberly Kennedy, which I'm so excited about, and Araya Lester. That's going to be such a decent conversation. Other MJ, I can't wait for that one either. Um, so let me go ahead and say our little outro, and we're going to be out of here, y'all. So thank you for joining us for the eighth episode, which I can't believe we're there so far, of The Well Projects, The Well um, Girl Like Me Live. Please join us again in two weeks on September 22nd as we discuss sexual health with The Well Project Community Advisory Board member Kimberly Kennedy and Araya Lester. We look forward to seeing you then. So thank y'all again. Bye. <laughs>